We have a couple of different instances in the New Testament, um, in the Gospels, where storms are the setting. Um, and we can identify with that internally, but sometimes externally it's hard to get a real big, big kind of grasp on. We're not really like voyagers around here. Indiana's not known for its seafaring. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, like the prairie schooners or long drives or, you know, wind across fields and things like that. Uh, yeah, we get it, but the ground is the ground. Any boaters? In the room, if you're, uh, if you're with us online, if you want to respond, if you say something, you know, like, yeah, a boater here. What is below that water? What's below the surface? More water. <laughs> More water. And you don't really know. I mean, there's optical illusions. There's all kind of crazy things. You can get out a pole and you kind of stick it down in there and it bends and you go, well, that's not as far as I thought or maybe that's way further than I thought. Something about those waves, something about that water, something about that, uh, for as in the historical setting, especially here in the New Testament, there was a deep, real fear to that. Um, the ancient Near East, uh, water and the, the sea represented the untamable chaos of, of reality that, that could not be understood. What would you do if you didn't have a flashlight? Just, just think through this, mental, this, this process, you know, there's a little bit of a mental exercise here. If, you had, if there was no such thing as an fl underwater flashlight, how would you know what was down there in the darkness? There's no way of knowing. There's no way to tell. I mean, you can, you can try to drop the, the, uh, the rope. You can try to get a depth measurement of some kind. But what else is down there is always a big question. And there was a real fear of, of, the, of the sea, a real fear of the, of the depths. Um, uh, some of the different mythology just equate, actually, the depths with death and the darkness and the idea of it's just bottomless. Well, I mean, it's just going to keep going. And we have storms in the New Testament, and there's these really cool different depictions. The first one, if you think about the one in Mark 4, or maybe it's uh, the, the parallel account of that is in Matthew uh, 8, and you have Jesus, and you have the disciples, and they're on a, the Sea of Galilee, which they're incredibly familiar with. I mean, that would be like, you know, name the lake that you're most familiar with. They're on this sea, and the storm comes up out of nowhere, and these guys who are used to being on this water and used to being in this boat and used to doing this together, something about this particular event, something about this circumstance is different. And they get scared. It actually says that they get terrified. And Jesus is sleeping. This is the first instance. This is the first occurrence. Jesus is resting. He's asleep in the midst of this thing. And they go and wake him up. Lord, we're going to die. And he calms it with the words, peace be still. With just those words, peace be still. And it says they looked at him and they were amazed. 
what is going on? What is going on here? We've never seen anybody who can do that before. Nobody controls the weather, and nobody has authority over the sea except God. So maybe we got this clue. You know, there's a clue kind of coming in early on in these Gospels, especially Mark 4. But this second instance we're going to look at this morning, the second instance is here in Matthew 14. So if you'd like to turn there with me. Now, this series is an exciting thing. I think it's great because what we're doing is we're, uh, we're actually doing exercises in narrative theology. Most of us know how to pull theology out of discourse. You know, when Jesus gives a parable or when he gives a teaching or when we see Paul's writing letters and he says, do this and don't do that, we go, okay, I get that. Don't do that. Do this. You know, don't eat food sacrificed to idols and, you know, pay attention to my brother's conscience and, you know, uh, husband of one wife and things like, I mean, it seems very straightforward. But the Gospels also have rich narrative to them because we're getting to know the character of Jesus. We're getting to know who this person is as a real person, not just as a talking head. Because if he was just a talking head, he becomes a great teacher. If he's not a person who has relationships with a mother with brothers, with disciples, with enemies, with the government, all of a sudden we get a more rounded, actually incarnate perspective, and we say, wow, this is a real person, and there's relationship here, not just, not just words coming out of a face that I'm supposed to really pay attention to. So this series is really fun because it's narrative theology. We're saying, hey, if Jesus is God, and if talking to God is prayer, if prayer is talking to God, then what we have in these examples of people talking to Jesus is actually some really neat examples of what it can look like to pray, to pray honestly, to pray vulnerably, to pray without pretense, to pray without a mask, to pray without thinking, oh, I need to use these words, dear Lord Jesus as if we're always addressing a letter instead of talking to a person. And so what we have in this series is this prayers to Jesus is saying, hey, where are these instances where people talk to Jesus? And I go, that makes sense to me. I've been there. I can identify with that. Last week, Pastor Earl uh, shared about the father who has a son who's being plagued and tormented by a, a demonic influence and who's just at his wit's end. And this prayer that comes out of this man is, Lord, I want to believe, help my unbelief. And how many of us have ever prayed that prayer? Yeah, absolutely. Many of us maybe have prayed that prayer already today. We go, Lord, I want to believe, help my unbelief. And we have Jesus interacting with this person who prays this prayer, we go, wow, I wonder if that's the same way that he actually kind of interacts with me too. And then you have here in this Mark, in this, uh, sorry, Matthew 14, we have this setting of this storm. We have this really intriguing environment. So follow along with me as I'm reading. Starting in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Context there, he had just fed a lot of people and they wanted to give him some rule because 
That's what we do. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them, and early in the morning he came walking towards them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him saying to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Do you, do you sense the urgency do you see the storm? Matthew, in this, in this unfolding of things, there's, there's words here to say. There's motion happening. We went from evening after Jesus had just uh, fed a whole bunch of people. Suddenly, in one, if you were in the NASB or something very literal, it would say in the, in the fourth watch, sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. So Jesus has been praying up until that point. And the disciples, who are excellent fishermen, who are excellent, who are, who are men of experience in boating, are struggling on the Sea of Galilee with a storm again. But the difference between this episode and the last episode is Jesus isn't there with them. Matthew really wants us to understand that Jesus was somewhere else. He was up on the mountain, and the disciples had gotten in the boat, and they were going on ahead. And they were not with Jesus anymore. You see that? Matthew's telling, some, telling us something here, and, and at first glance, we can get this understanding that Jesus has authority over that which no one has authority. He's walking on the sea. This, this emblem of chaos and disorder and that which can't be tamed because you can't even grab it, it, it can get you... <laughs> You can't get it. And yet here's Jesus walking out on the sea. It doesn't say, again, Matthew's very clear to say, this is not close to shore. They were, far, they were far from the land. This is not Jesus walking out on a sandbar saying, okay, I saw you struggling out here and I saw the land. And uh, even in the midst of the sea, because there's wind and the waves and the wind and the storm, okay, so Jesus is going to do that. No, it says actually he's walking on that. Let's not mistake that. The first thing that jumps out to me, and I don't know if it jumped out to you as well or not, but Jesus sent them into this. 
Do you see that? It says Jesus compelled them. And actually, in one of the translations, you would say something like he ordered them. He made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side. Do you think Jesus knew there was a storm coming? You can nod or you can, you know, you can nod or you can just kind of wonder. I mean, we're not going to get into an omniscience uh, question here. Simply the question of Jesus invited the disciples, made them, compelled them, get in this boat and get out on that water, and he was going to meet them on the other side. Did you think maybe he knew there was a storm coming? Or in the middle of the night was a storm there and he knew what that they needed? Either way, how does that sit with you? The circumstances are difficult, but not impossible. They've probably been in storms before. Here's the question. Do you realize or do you understand that just because a situation is difficult, maybe even impossible, that does not mean the Lord hasn't sent you into it? Circumstances are hard. I, I mean, even, we can even go so far as to just admit and recognize that life is hard. God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. Okay? So it is not unlike Jesus to send us into lives where our trust will be challenged. Okay, you're going to see a trend or a little bit of a theme in some of the notes this morning because what I'm trying to pick up on is what is it like Jesus to do and what's it like us to do? What is it like Jesus to do? What's it like us to do? That's kind of the cues of narrative theology is to say, okay, we see him acting this way. Is that in keeping with his character? How am I learning, grasping, understanding, better getting a hold of who this person is and what is it in their character to act like? So it is not unlike Jesus to send us into lives where our trust will be challenged. Jesus is not afraid to send us into storms. Okay, we see this. We can even know this cognitively, but when we get there, what's our first question? Am I doing something wrong? When there's difficulty and hardship and suffering and pain and the circumstances feel like they're impossible and hopeless, our first question sometimes, at least mine, ends up going like, what did I do wrong to get here? Not, I'm very often, very seldom am I wondering, Jesus, did you send me into something hard on purpose? <laughs> Jesus, did you send me into something that feels impossible? Because that wouldn't be necessarily unlike you, <laughs> would it? I want you to notice something else in this, that the disciples, we don't know anything about what's going through their minds. just says that they're struggling. They're frustrated. They're struggling. They cannot get to the other side. The wind is contrary. They aren't going anywhere. It is a storm. There is big wind. There are waves. They are terrified. But Matthew is in no way getting us to understand that they were crying out for Jesus and he responded to them. You see that? There is no 
proactive outcry where the disciples are crying out for help. Jesus comes to them. I think that's extraordinary for me. For me, sometimes I forget that He is fully aware of the difficulty of anything. Sometimes I forget that it's like Jesus is actually fully aware of that storm, of that difficulty, of those circumstances, of that frustration, of that fear. And when you're afraid of something, what's on your mind? Let me get you, let me, let me put you through this. Is there any crazy roller coaster rider people in here? Like, do people, is there any people here who actually enjoy that? Yeah, so I can't do that. I see the hands. If you're online, please, you can say that you're one of those, one of those people too. Why do you enjoy the feeling of almost about to die for about 90 seconds? I mean, if you get me into a roller coaster and you strap me in, my literally, the only thing on my mind for the next 90 to 120 seconds is don't die, don't die, don't die. Like, don't die, don't die. Because I'm afraid. Because it's terrifying to me. And when you're afraid and when you're terrifying, what are you doing? You're thinking about the problem. How do we solve this? How do I fix this? Somebody grab that oar. Somebody pull that down. Somebody just get the boat, get the water out of the boat. I mean, you are in full-blown problem-solving mode. And if our problem-solving mode it doesn't begin with prayer, which I don't think that it would for these guys quite yet, then it's a big surprise when Jesus is already there. And that's what we have. Matthew is telling us this is like Jesus comes out to them, that he meets them in the midst of that storm, that he comes walking on the water to them. Not because he's been conjured in their time of need. They weren't, we don't have any reason to think that they were calling out for him, but because he knew what they were going to need. I, think that's, I just think that's extraordinary. Again, I'm looking at what is this Jesus like? What's it like him to do? Is it like him to know what I need before even I do? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is like Jesus to know what I need before I do. They were so surprised they thought they were seeing things. I kind of like to have that experience myself. So here's another reminder. There is no circumstance of life that Jesus is not aware of or cannot meet us in. It can feel very scary. And we can be looking at everything going, just don't die, just don't die, just don't die, stay alive, let's stay alive, let's stay alive. And here we have to train ourselves to say, but where's Jesus in this? Where's Jesus in this? because He promised to never leave us or forsake us, and He promised that He would always be with us, and He keeps His Word. So if He's the kind of guy, if He's the kind of Lord, if He's the kind of Savior who keeps His Word and He says, never will I leave you nor forsake you, I will be with you even to the end of the age, then that is the kind of Word we have to realize is always true even when things feel most impossible and terrifying. And we want to go, where is he?
Now we get to the good, the good stuff, because this is kind of like, this is just the setting, right? This is just kind of noticing what's there to be noticed. Now we have Peter, okay? Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That's uh, in, in verse 27. Literally in the Greek, it's simply, I am here. Is that enough to comfort us? Is that enough to give us a sense of security? Look at these guys. Literally just a few chapters ago, Jesus had, had calmed the storm. He'd calmed the wind and the waves simply by saying, be still. So if you see Jesus coming out in the middle of this storm, if you're me, if I'm with these guys, we're saved. He's just going to calm it again. Say the words. Say the words, Jesus. We know what you can do. Just say it. Say, be still. But no, Peter, we'll get to him. I want to see his power come through again, right? I want to see, okay, in the past, what you have done is you have just made everything stop. You've met the problem. You've seen the circumstances. You've seen the hardship and the impossible feeling of them. You've seen the hopelessness. You saw how scared I was, and you just said, stop it. Peace be still to the circumstances and to all of that. And I, all of a sudden, there it was, and it was just calm, and so if I'm these guys on this boat, this is what I'm thinking. He's going to do it again. This is going to be awesome. But he doesn't. Instead, the words that come out of his mouth are not peace be still. The words that come out of his mouth are, it is I. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Well, I mean, I'm kind of thinking... Yeah, I'm not going to be afraid because you're going to fix it. I'm not going to be afraid because you're about to calm the storm. I'm not going to be afraid as soon as the wind and the waves stop. Because more often than not, I think I have a greater sense of comfort in his power than in his presence. See, I'm lingering for effect. You can look at your notes and you go, I think that's something we're supposed to write down and you'd be right. It is like Jesus to comfort us with his presence and not just his power. It is like Jesus to sometimes just say, I'm here. Don't be afraid. And we keep looking at the storm. And we keep saying, but the wind, but the water is big and it's scary. And his response is, I am here. Do not be afraid. See, he met them in their terror. It says that they were terrified. They were frightened because the wind was contrary and they were gonna, I mean, they're scared. And Jesus's comfort is, I am here. Don't be afraid. If he had just said, don't be afraid, what would that do for you? Okay, I'll work on that right now. I've, just, I've never met anybody who, if you told them, just stop being afraid, that immediately you just go, oh yeah, I was being dumb. I, I should know better than to just not be afraid. This is a natural instinct. There's a, there's a reflexive thing happening in me mentally and emotionally, and I can just turn it off. Jesus knows that. We can't do that. So the preface is, I am here. Is that enough, or do we need the power? 
Is that enough, or do we need the power? Because it is like Jesus to comfort us with His presence and not just His power. It is like Jesus to say, I am here. Don't be afraid. Peter. (laughs) Who loves Peter? I love Peter. I think Peter is just such a guy that I continue to just identify with and go, okay, I'm so glad you're around. (laughs) We don't have a lot of discourse or a lot of words from a lot of guys. I mean, we have Thomas and what he gets known for saying, you know, looking at Jesus and saying, okay, well, let's go with him so that we can die too. Or, you know, Lord, I I won't believe until I can put my fingers in the nails, in the nail holes. Thomas saying those things. We don't have a whole lot of language or, or words out of anybody else. We have some from John, we have Judas, but Peter, there's a lot of Peter. So Peter says, Lord, if it is you, there's that question of, I am here. If it is you, come, ask me to come to you. Do you know what we're seeing right now? Prayer. We're seeing prayer. <laughs> Anybody ever prayed a prayer like that? If it's you, give me some instructions. Tell me what to do. Surprise, surprise, Jesus says, come, like out of the boat, like, on, like into this storm. Because again, we have to keep in mind that the storm has not subsided. The wind is still there. The waves are still there. It's all still very dangerous. I don't think, I don't think that Peter is always intending to give us a demonstration of foot and mouth disease. But sometimes, I think he does get surprised too. I think sometimes he goes, wait, really? Come on. Okay, but Peter is, is full of faith here, and he's just seen Jesus feed the, the, the multitude, and he's also seen Jesus calm the wind and the waves. So it's fully within reason, I think, he's, I, to say, yeah, this is something I can do because you said so. Because Jesus, because you said so, I can do this. I can come to you. I can do what doesn't look like it should be done. I can do what doesn't look like it's possible to do. And there are lots of us who are not quite even in the faith to a point of faith where we're willing to do that. We keep asking God to help us do what we're really comfortable doing. We keep asking Him, Lord, send me to places and let me talk to people that I really don't have a lot of problem talking to or that I don't have any problem going. Keep sending me to comfortable places to talk to people I know. Instead of looking and and wondering if we can pray like Peter saying, well, if it's you, and this is really dangerous and scary, so there's no way you would, but tell me to come to you. And all of a sudden he does. We got to learn from this. I think I, there's something to learn here. Do you know what it means to, uh, to doubt? This is just, again, just rhetorically thinking through what does doubt mean? 
sometimes we have some really great clues in the semantics in the, in the original language. In the original language, and if we look at Greek, what the Greek word for doubt is, is two minds. To be of two minds. To be double-minded. To think like this and like this at the same time. You, get, you ever seen a picture of the struggle bus? It's, one of my, it's just one of my favorite kind of pictures. Have you ever seen an image of the struggle bus or heard reference to the struggle bus? The struggle bus is a bus that has a, uh, an engine or a front at both ends. Which way is this bus going to go? It's pointed in two different directions, stomping on the gas in two opposite ways. Doubt in the, in the Greek, the doubt, the word for doubt, is to have two minds. Peter begins with one mind. Lord, if this is you, if it's really you, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. One mind. I'm coming to you. And on his way, another mind, a louder mind, a more natural mind, an understandable mind, pushes in on that, on that first commitment, on that first perspective, and says, but what about the wind? But what about the waves? But what about this storm? And we have Peter. We have Peter that it says, saw the wind and began to sink. And here we have this prayer. Here we have this prayer that I think could be maybe the most important prayer that any of us have ever prayed. Lord, save me. How simple is that? I mean, to be fair, if you're sinking, do you have a, I mean, are you going to present a dissertation at the time? Is it going to be a long, pious prayer? Or just He's not going to recite the Psalms, run through the list of the names of God, and, and, and really just spend some time in adoration and spend some time in thanksgiving and spend some time in praise. No, there's some urgency to the situation. And these very simple prayer, Lord, save me. And many of us prayed that prayer this week. Just me? See, in our, in our modern kind of time and in, 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 in our age of bootstrap self-awareness and bootstrap kind of self-development, we would go, Peter, you probably know how to swim. We need to take some deep breaths and calm down. Let's do some deep breathing exercises and try to, you know, get out of this frantic mentality, try to get out of this sense of, you know, the, the, the dissonance happening. Let's try, to, let's try to calm ourselves and see if we can't get a handle on the situation. There's really no need to bother Jesus. Any, anybody ever had the enemy whisper those lies? 
just me? Because sometimes, even though Jesus is the one who's called me into the difficulty, I'm thinking that he probably doesn't really, I mean, he kind of expects me to have a little bit of a handle on it. And here we have Peter, and I just love it. I just love Peter's, Lord, save me. There's no hope outside of you. There's no hope. Lord, save me. And now if we kind of look at this from the side, and we go, what in Indiana, in north-central Indiana, where there's a few rivers but not many seas, what is it that we sink in? What is it that we have, have, that we have seen the Lord call us in, into a sense of, of, of confidence over and a sense of comfort in His presence and faithful walking, and yet it just sometimes reaches out and grabs us again? could be addiction, could be pride, self-justification, greed, jealousy, unforgiveness, depression, despair, just, just that general anxious hopelessness. That sometimes feels like it's just about to swallow us up. And we go, I don't know what else to do. And so somehow Jesus becomes our last resort instead of our first cry of help. Well, I've done everything else. I've done the counseling. I've had some medicine. I've, been, I, 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 I've, I've watched what I'm listening to. I've watched my media intake. You know, I've done all of the things that people have advised, but nothing seems to be working. So I probably should now ask God for help. I think Peter didn't really have time to get some swimming lessons. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. There's no time to figure out how to solve this problem. Lord, save me. The one that we all understand, the one that we all know, the one that we all can recognize is just the sense of sin. born sinners, incapable of performing any righteous work, incapable of pleasing God, incapable of holiness. And the best we can do, the best we can do is say, Lord, save me. And some of us are still splashing around going, no, I got that. I'll figure it out. A few things here I would really love to, to make sure that we get a, a perspective on. 
Do you see what Jesus does? Again, you'd have to look behind the English and see something, because I don't think I ever saw this before this week. When did Jesus catch Peter? It's not a trick question. Just again, think through yourself. My translation here that I'm reading for him, the NRSV. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him. Matthew's giving it to us immediately. Immediately. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him. In the, in the original text, it says, having already reached out his hand, he caught him. that Jesus was already reaching in Peter's cry. Again, what is this like Jesus? Is Jesus the kind of Savior who is reaching out or waiting to be invited? I think the former. I see the former. I see Jesus reaching out before Peter even knows to cry. But somehow, again, we wonder if Jesus will delay. Maybe even if we have a, a if we've had some bad experiences with, um, with people who say they care for us, if we've had some bad experiences with people who, who say they're there for us or are there to protect us, we have some bad experiences. Sometimes we can even see Jesus going, now, Peter, this is a teachable moment. I need you to understand that you took your eyes off of me and put them on the water and the wind, and that was the wrong choice. In the future, in the future, a better way to go about this would be to keep your eyes on me and walk all the way here. Now, I'll help you up, and I can get you up, and we'll, we'll figure this out another time. Do you see Jesus doing that? Do you see Jesus chastising Peter before he rescues him? But we sometimes feel it. We sometimes go, well, what kind of Jesus is that? Do you believe that Jesus is the kind of Lord who is able to save you no matter what you're sinking in and is already reaching out to catch you? because Matthew is showing that to us. Matthew is showing him to us. Does Jesus first catch you or correct you? Does he need you to think about the mess you're in, or does he immediately save by returning your focus to him? Now, this is where I want to stop and notice something, because I had never seen this before. And if you're like me and you grew up in the church, you're going like, I've heard a sermon on this particular passage probably a half a dozen or ten times, if I've heard it once. When does the storm stop? Because again, in my mind, for some reason, I have the storm stopping as Jesus grabs hold of Peter. 
I have the storm stopping mentally as I'm reading this. It just, for some reason, as Jesus grabs hold of Peter, he pulls him up, and Peter's now standing on pristine, glassy waters, and they walk back to the boat. But that's not what the text says. It's still storming. The wind is still there. Even when Jesus rescues Peter, the circumstances haven't changed. Do you see it? Let me read it to you. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Verse 32. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. So Jesus picks Peter up, And still in that wind, still in those waves, still in that storm, walks him back to the boat. How awesome! How awesome! And yet, how. Oh, you mean you're still not just gonna zap it and make it all calm and smooth? Because that's what we want. The wind didn't stop. Peter wasn't saved because Jesus grabbed him and then stilled the storm. Peter was saved because he was with Jesus again. The storm didn't stop. I always thought that Peter and Jesus walked back to the boat on a glassy smooth sea, but sometimes the circumstances don't resolve until they run their course. But here's what I had to learn. Here's what I learned in preparing to try to share something about this. Here's what I learned. Being with Jesus is being saved no matter what else is going on. I needed that reminder. I needed that reminder. Being with Jesus is being saved no matter what else is going on. Am I the kind of person who has two minds? Am I the kind of person who was really looking for Jesus to demonstrate his power and not just reveal his presence? Am I the kind of person who is still looking at the circumstances, waiting for Jesus to fix the wind? Or is being with Jesus being saved? I want to make a brief note on the OU of little faith, because again, through, through, through whatever the lens is that I have and whatever I have it, I read this and I hear chastising, and I had to look at it close. Matthew uses this four times in the gospel. It's only used five times in the whole New Testament. The fifth time is in the gospel of Luke in this exact same episode. So in the other four times, this is a Matthean Matthean phrase, something that is important to Matthew's narrative, and in each case, it is compassion. In each case, it is Jesus noticing, observing weakness and responding with His strength. Jesus is not the kind of Lord who says, how come you didn't do what you couldn't do? 
Do you know what that's like? Right? I have a counselor who, who says uh, when she was growing up, simply says something like, when I was growing up, my mom used to tell me to go upstairs until I could straighten myself out, go to my room until I was ready to behave. But if I knew how to behave, I would have been behaving. Is Jesus the kind of Lord who says, I, who, who, who compels or somehow expects you to do what you can't do? If Peter doesn't have the faith then is Jesus condemning him for not having the faith? Again, this is my lens. I'm reading this going like, and yet the Matthean phrase where we find it is Jesus compassionately, tenderly responding to weakness saying, oh, you're not that strong yet. I have a baby, and when I see her be weak, I don't think you should be stronger. Until she could walk, I didn't expect her to walk. Now that she can run, I don't expect her to keep crawling. We have Peter here gaining and working into and learning and developing a relationship with Jesus where he is learning who Jesus is, and Jesus is continuing to reveal who it is. In fact, this is a major episode in Jesus' revelation as the Son of God. It's the last verse. But until this point, Peter can't run he can barely crawl. But Peter says, Lord, ask me to walk. Now, in Jesus asking Peter to walk, does Jesus then respond with disappointment that Peter can't walk? Or does Jesus know you can't walk yet? Again, here's this. Do you, what does Jesus know? But when he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt I want you to hear that Jesus is responding tenderly to a weakness and trying to get Peter to understand that he was with him. That he had never left. That he was with him. That it was Peter who embraced that second mind that said, look at this, look at the wind, look at the waves, look how much danger you're in, look how hard this is, look how difficult it is, look how hopeless it feels. But Jesus was there the whole time. It is that faith to say, no, I have to, this is where I need to be looking. Instead of being swamped by our natural mind, instead of being swamped by that second mind that says, no, look at this difficulty. If we know what this is like, if we have cried out, Lord, save me, if we have cried out, God, help, if we have walked out in obedience only to stumble and fall and feel like it's all about to collapse and it's all going to be over any second, just to experience rescue. We can't forget that. Don't forget that. Don't forget those stories. Don't forget those testimonies. Share them. Share them. I could have gone into different stories here this morning, and I wrestled with which ones to share, whether it had to do with bouts and, and battling of depression, or bouts and battling of anger, or bouts and battling of, of shame, or whatever it may be. And I'd, 
be happy to share any of those with you if it's going to compel you to see that Jesus is the kind of Lord who wants to reach out and, and catch you and rescue you and whatever it is that you're sinking in. But if we've had that experience, if we know that kind of salvation, Matthew doesn't give us a, uh, uh, many options of what it looks like to be fully aware of rescue. It looks like worship. So we must not be the kind of people who forget our deliverance. You could put in rescue, you could put in salvation and fail to worship, who just have that encounter, see Him come through, have that rescue, have that salvation, have that deliverance, and then go, oh, that was pretty neat. This is a pivotal turning point in Matthew's, in Matthew's gospel. There is a pivotal thing happening here where 12 Galilean men raised as Jews, devout Jews who believe in the one true living God, fall and worship a man in a boat and say, truly, you are the Son of God. In the span of 11 verses, we have Jesus going from a prayerful teacher to a water walker to the Son of God. Who is He to you? Which one of those is it that you're saying, yeah, that's how I see Him? Because if it's still prayerful teacher, it may be that you need to say, Lord, I need you to call me out of the boat. And if it's just as a distant water walker saying, oh, that's really cool. Look what Jesus can do. He can do cool stuff. Maybe you don't really know what it's like to be rescued. Maybe you're not sure exactly what kind of danger you were in before. Crying out, Lord, save me. Because I think Matthew leaves us only this last option of saying, like, wow, we're here to worship. We're here to worship. We're here to say there is nobody like this. There is no one else like this.